0: The Thursday before Easter is traditionally called Monday Thursday in the Christian world. Monday comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means commandment. And this references and refers to Jesus at the Last Supper giving the great commandment to his disciples. You should love one another. Now I tend to be kind of obstinate in general. And so whenever I hear somebody giving me a commandment, I immediately want to know, Well, why should I listen to you? Who are you? Now, clearly, in this case, it is Jesus, well worth listening to. But nevertheless, upon what right does Jesus have to give us a commandment is something that I believe that our passage that we're going to look at today picks up on. Also, on Monday-Thursday services, generally when we gather together, and this is one of the great sadnesses and sorrows for me about our experience this year, we are not able to worship Physically with one another and therefore we are not able to celebrate communion together Communion is something that they did the the Last Supper and that is instituted the Last Supper for us the Lord's Supper in which we experience And the communion service is our common unity. It emphasizes the fact that we are connected one to another uh, Picture for instance if you go out of state you're traveling somewhere and you happen to see somebody that has a Steeler shirt or a penguin's hat on or something like that, there's an immediate sense of association or of identification with that person. There's a a unity. Well, what is the common unity that holds us together as Steeler fans or whatever? We're from the Pittsburgh area. What is the common unity that holds us together when we celebrate communion together? Uh, What is the thing that binds us? As a people that we celebrate on Monday, Thursday, that we anticipate here as we come together. What is that? Well, once again, I believe that the passage that we're going to look at today highlights some of those things. So if you will turn in your scriptures to John chapter 19, we will be looking at verses 16 through 22. John 19, verses 16 through 22. And so Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and had it put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered them, What I have written, I have written. This is the word of the Lord, and now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The text here jumps into the middle of the story. Jesus has left the Last Supper with his disciples, and he has gone now along his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he has prayed with his disciples, where he has uh, poured out his heart his Lord for this, and during that time, Judas has been arranging to have Jesus arrested. And so at the garden, Jesus is arrested, and he is taken from there before Caiaphas and Anias, and then ultimately before Pilate for trials. And as he is going through these trials, now we come to the very end, the very last one, where Pilate condemns him to death. And so, verse 16 begins here with, "...so he delivered him to them to be crucified." And the first two pronouns are pretty straightforward. I think it's fairly clear that we can get the picture of what John is writing here. "...so he delivered him, so Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified." And I think the them here is kind of ambiguous. Pilate delivered Jesus over to them... The Roman soldiers were responsible for the crucifixion, for any time that they carried out the capital punishments that was meted out by the Roman trial here. And in this case, Pilate gives over Jesus to the Roman soldiers so that they might crucify him. But I think the text also identifies the them there as the Jewish leaders of that day that were calling for Jesus' death and for who were condemning him across the board. And so here we have Pilate delivering Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to crucify him. So certainly the weight and the blame lies upon the Roman Empire and for their abuses here of Jesus, and yet also to the Jewish leadership, who also bear the blame for their misunderstanding and for their failure to grasp Jesus as he truly is. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. He went out. Now, perhaps the idea of him going out here in verse 17, it speaks of him going out. Perhaps that going out is simply going out away from Pilate's presence. But much more likely, they are going out outside Jerusalem's walls. Jerusalem was a walled city, and at that time there were five gates, main gates or so, into the city. And here they took Jesus... Who was going to be crucified outside the gate? Now, there's a temptation here to think that they are trying to hide this uh, of uh, this crucifixion, or that they are trying to tuck it away off to the side, kind of like what you do with your crazy uncle during family gatherings and stuff. You push him off to the side so he doesn't embarrass the rest of the uh, rest of the gathering. Perhaps they are trying to tuck Jesus away, to get him out of the way so that the people do not see or have to experience the crucifixion. Just the opposite effect. The gates to the city were those places where everybody would come. Every Jewish person who was moving in and out of the city, every traveler, every visitor to Jerusalem, would go through one of the gates. And so the gates were not, uh, out, right outside the gates, were the, was a highly public place. It was a very important spot for people to gather and for people to witness what is going on. So when the Roman Empire takes Jesus and they crucify him outside the gates, they are not hiding him away. Rather, what they are doing is they are very publicly exposing him so that everyone can see, so that it is clear exactly what is going on with Jerusalem, uh, with Jesus here at Jerusalem. They are putting him on display by putting him outside the gates. It's the main thoroughfare where everybody would witness what is going on. And here we are told that Jesus goes outside the gates to a place called Golgotha and there at Golgotha or on the way to Golgotha he carries his own cross. Now this would not have been the Uh, Both pieces of the cross The standing up part and the cross piece He would have just been carrying the cross piece And that cross piece could weigh Upwards of 75 pounds He would have been carrying that cross piece Which ultimately he would be Nailed to or tied to As the condemned criminals All condemned criminals would do such On their way to the execution spot Now the other gospel writers Identify uh, Simon of Cyrene as the man whom once Jesus uh, is too weakened to continue to carry his own cross, that Simon is enforced by the Romans to carry the cross for Jesus. John doesn't mention that. And it's not that that didn't take place or that's not uh, John's interest. What John is speaking of, he's focusing on something different. It's quite appropriate for us to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ and to mention the suffering and to mention the anguish And the sorrow and the weakness and the humility uh, that Jesus displayed going to the cross. Uh, But none of those are John's interest at this time. John is painting us a picture during this time, this, this whole experience, where when we look at the cross we see Jesus in a particular setting. And John wants to paint us that picture right here and part of that imagery is by emphasizing that Jesus carried his own cross. Not that he didn't eventually have Simon step in and help out, yes that's true, but in this instance John just focuses on the fact that Jesus is not a victim here. Jesus is not an unwilling sacrifice. Jesus is actually following his father's plan and he is doing so by the virtue of his own will. And so John emphasizes this just a little bit in that phrase that he carried his own cross. Then they get to Golgotha, and in verse 18 you have the short phrase, there they crucified him. Now very quickly, John passes right over the details of this. And he does so, I think, for a couple of different reasons. One, he passes over rather quickly, I think, because he has... Uh, another emphasis in mind. He is focusing not so much upon the physical sufferings of Jesus, but upon his spiritual sufferings and what it means that Jesus here is going by his own will to the cross and what that, how that focuses our attention upon the person of Jesus, as he's going to elaborate here in a few seconds. But also I think it's the reality that The Jewish people at the time, the original readers of the gospel message, everybody in the Roman Empire would know what crucifixion looked like. They wouldn't need to have it explained to them. They wouldn't have to talk about the physical sufferings and the process, the methodology of crucifixion. Similarly, if we were to announce that we knew of somebody or had read somewhere that somebody got shot We wouldn't expect to have a detailed account of how the gun worked or uh, all of those kind of things in the same way. Just very briefly, John says, and they crucified him. But again, John is painting us a picture. And the picture that he desires is not one of the physical sufferings of Jesus. But he is aiming for something else. And with Jesus were two others, one on either side, and Jesus was between them. Again, John passes very quickly over the story of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. The other gospel writers spend more time focusing there, but that is not John's intent. I believe that you get a picture of what John is interested in. The, the, the orientation that John wants us to think. When we think of the cross of Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to think of? What is... John's picture here for us, each one of us as we go into this Easter weekend, as we celebrate Christ's death, and then as we celebrate his resurrection, what is the picture that is to be in our minds of who this Jesus is, as John describes him? Well, if he passes very quickly over uh, Jesus' pathway to get to Golgotha, if he passes very quickly over the crucifixion process itself, if he barely touches on the thieves who were crucified with Jesus, what is it that John emphasizes? What does he spend a lot of time talking about? Here we see, then in verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, would have been written on a placard that Jesus would have carried while he was carrying the cross after leaving the trial and going to Golgotha that would have been hung around his neck and once he got to the place of crucifixion and he was nailed to the cross that accusation, the description of why Jesus was being crucified would have been nailed over his head and for the Roman Empire this would have had a tremendous point this would have had the the focus would have been an emphasis that would have drawn their attention to everybody who passed by so they would know why this criminal was being crucified. So there's a, a, a good reason for the Roman Empire. They have a vested interest in making sure that everybody sees why this person is being crucified and so that they are warned against the same practices, the same dangers. But I believe that this is one illustration of something that has happened over and over again throughout this story. This is where the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the gospel, end up unwittingly serving the purpose of the gospel itself. John spends a lot of time here in the crucifixion account talking about this plaque that is put upon Jesus' Uh, over Jesus' head on the cross. And that is because that plaque itself represents a witness of the gospel message. And the power of the gospel message, it gives an insight, a focus point, for us to understand the very things that are taking place on the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jews realize this. The Jewish leaders realize this. And they complain to Pilate And they say, don't put on there that he's the king of the Jews. Put on there that he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate, because he's irritated with these Jewish leaders, and I think just to annoy them, says, what I have written, I have written. But what he has written is the gospel message for the entire world. For here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now when we talk about King of the Jews, we automatically think, I think, we default to understanding this as an ethnic group. The Jewish people as an ethnic community, as a racial uh, description of this group of people. That's not at all what the way we should understand it as believers. When we read the scriptures, we have to recognize that the Israelites, the Jewish nation, that it's not an ethnic group. It rather are all of those who claim the name of Jesus Christ it is God's special people. It is those for whom Jesus Christ died. And here, what we have hung over Jesus' head is this is the King of God's people. The King of God's people. And notice that this is spoken not just in Aramaic, which would have been the common language that everybody would have used, the Jews would have used one to another. It's also written in Latin which would have been the language that the Romans would have understood and used, and it is written in Greek. And I again, I find a, a divine guidance to Pilate's action here in this case. Pilate uh, unwittingly, unknowingly, accidentally, yet providentially giving revelation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Aramaic, in Latin, in Greek is announced here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, or the king of all of God's people. Now, it's written in Aramaic. And as I mentioned earlier, Aramaic is the language that you would use if you were Jewish in your home. It was the, the language of familiarity. It's what you would use with your family. It was, it's the way you would talk with your close friends and people you knew well in the street. You would use Aramaic in this sense. And here we are reminded that Jesus is king of the Jews. He's king of all God's people here in a, in a sense of, of all of our family and our community and those whom are near and dear to us. Uh, way back in the 90s, my wife and I took some college students and we went to Bulgaria. And in Bulgaria, we did some open-air preaching. And I was somewhat amazed at myself being willing and able to do open air evangelism and preaching and yet I was so frustrated and ashamed because it was so hard for me to share the gospel with my friends and my family. Those people, the, the people that I spoke Aramaic with, the people who were closest with me, those whom I identified most clearly with, uh, of course I recognized that Jesus is their king as well and yet I hesitated. I was it was harder for me to share the gospel with them than it was when I went overseas and was in this cross-cultural situation. We are reminded by Pilate's description of Jesus that he is king of those who are right close and near and dear to us. And not only that, but the Aramaic here reflects that mundane aspect of life. That... The, the Aramaic is that which you would, the, the, what you would use in the household. It was what the language you would use with your family. It, it, the regular things that happen all the time in life. Here, Jesus is king of all of these things. Christ is king of the world. And he is king of the world in every mundane step, in every mundane action in our lives. But not just in Aramaic, it is also written in Latin. And Latin, again, is the language of the Roman conquerors. It's the language of the army. It's the language of the legal proceedings. It's the high and special cultured things that happens here. Jesus is king, not just for the mundane aspects of the world, but Jesus is king in the Latin world, in the high culture, the high society aspects as well. Back in the early ages when Kelly and I first got married... We would uh, go down to Heinz Hall and uh, go to a play down there or to the symphony or something like that down at the Benedum, and we'd always dress up. And, and, I, and most of the people did. we we kind of dress up. We, we'd wear our best clothing. Why? Because we were doing something special. And it, it just it was kind of different than the mundane part of our world, and so we would kind of want to act the part. This is the special aspects of our lives, the unique times. And here, too, Christ is claiming lordship over. He is claiming to be the king over the special areas of your life, the special times of your life. So the weddings and the graduations and when you're doing unique things with your family or special travels or something, over every moment, every mundane aspect of your life, But also over every special time of your life, Jesus Christ is king of his people. Finally, it's not just written in Aramaic for the mundane aspects of this world. It's not just written in the Latin for the special times in this world. It is also written in Greek. Now, Greek was the language that was used in the marketplace. It was the language that was used all over the world. 300 years prior to Jesus, Alexander the Great had conquered uh, basically most of the known world and spread that Greek culture to and Greek language to the whole world. And so the, the known world spoke Greek kind of in their everyday discourse with one another. And here again, we see that Christ is king of our home life Christ is king of the special aspects of our life and then finally Christ is king over every other aspect that you can possibly name he is king over the marketplace he is king over the traveling world he is king over the your job he is king over your relationship with your coworkers he is king over the relate over the economy he is king over the nation he is king over all things. Here we have our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the cross, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what does John want you to see? Of course, we have the suffering Messiah. Of course, we have the one who is taking upon himself, who has taken upon himself all of our guilt, all of our sin, and who is suffering under the weight and the punishment of our guilt there upon the cross of Jesus Christ. But John wants to make sure that you see clearly what Pilate unmistakingly meant, did not mean to do, yet nevertheless witnessed to the world that here is the king of every aspect of your life. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, absolutely we see our suffering Messiah. But we also see our king. Not just the king of your life on Easter. Not just the king of your life in church. Not just the king of your life in your religious world. He is the king of your life in every mundane aspect, in every special aspect, and in everything you do throughout every minute of your day. Jesus Christ is the king of his people. What Pilate has written, he has written. Certainly, what God has proclaimed, he has proclaimed. And what we claim as our own, we claim by the hand of Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord and our Savior, now and forevermore. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we would ask at this time, that You would reinforce in our hearts and in our minds what it means that You are King. You are King, Lord, in every way. There is no aspect of our lives, there is no hidden spot, there is no thing that we hold dear that You have not claimed as Your own, that You have not claimed on the cross as Your own. Lord, by virtue of Your very blood that has shed on the cross, We recognize your authority. We recognize you as sovereign. We recognize you as our king. And we give ourselves totally and completely to you, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.